0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're going to be exploring one of the defining events of modern Chinese history the Cultural Revolution launched by Chairman Mao in 1966. We'll be asking why it came about, looking at the key moments in these traumatic years and exploring where we can still see its legacy in China today. To answer your questions and some of the most popular internet search queries on the subject, we were joined by Professor Rana Mitter of the University of Oxford, who's the author of numerous books on Chinese history. Putting your questions to Rana was BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar.
2: To lay the groundwork for what we're discussing, could we begin with one of the main online search queries about this topic, which is simply what was the Chinese Cultural Revolution?
3: The question of what the Cultural Revolution actually was is one of the most intriguing questions in really modern world history. Because, well, I'm going I'm to push the boat out. I'm going to say that I don't think there is any phenomenon anywhere in the world in the 20th century which is quite like the Cultural Revolution. Just to describe very briefly what happened, essentially for 10 years between 1966 and 1976 in the People's Republic of China, there was essentially an uprising against the Communist Party organized by the leader of the Communist Party, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, in which he mobilized groups in society, particularly China's youth, uh, some of China's workers and political allies in a set of moves which At a very basic level was partly about gaining more power for himself and marginalizing his enemies, but also had a really strong ideological purpose. And that ideological purpose was to renew the Chinese revolution, which he had founded, he had led, he had declared in 1949, when, uh, in his words, the Chinese people had stood up and the People's Republic had been founded. And 17 years on, in 1966, he felt that revolution had lost its fire it had lost its spark. It no longer had that sense of inspiration it had had before after 17 years of communist rule. So he led a revolution against his own party while still staying in power. And as I say, this is a political situation, a political scenario, which is really hard to see any kind of um, parallel for elsewhere in modern history, not just in China, but in any other country. It was accompanied by immense violence. Perhaps that's the thing that people remember most about the Cultural Revolution in retrospect, in which the actions against rival political leaders were not just taken with arrests and being taken away to dungeons, but rather with public humiliation in which people were beaten in the streets. They were forced to confess their own supposed political crimes. And China's youth in particular were mobilized to actually join in their millions in China's streets in an almost godlike worship of Chairman Mao. So there's a touch of the religious cult in, uh, in the midst of something that was a sort of political coup and also a kind of revolution within the revolution. So that's about as concise as I can get it. But basically, it gives you a sense of the richness, but also the terror that the Cultural Revolution uh, provides as a historical event.
2: Yes. And so you talked about uh, Mao's rivals within the, the Communist Party. So, So this wasn't just paranoia on his part. Did he actually have genuine opponents within the Chinese leadership?
3: Well, Rob, I'd remind you of the old saying that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And I think that that would be a particularly useful thing to think of when we think about the situation in China in the early 1960s. Let's just recap for people. The People's Republic of China, as I've said, was founded in 1949. And for the first 10 years or so of that period, um, it was allied to the Soviet Union. But Chairman Mao, leader of China, and Khrushchev, the, the leader of the Soviet Union, began to fall out big time. And by the beginning of the 1960s, it became clear that China was pretty isolated from the rest of the world. They were enemies with the Americans, and they were enemies, it turned out, with the Soviets as well. And this turned China inward. In addition, there was a huge domestic problem, which came from a policy sponsored by Mao called the Great Leap Forward. This was supposed to be a huge sort of, you know, boostering of China's uh, economic and industrial production. uh, But it was done at such pace that, in fact, it went horribly wrong And as a result of exaggerated um, uh, figures on agriculture, Mao basically started exporting grain outside China while leaving the peasants to starve in the countryside. So by the end of the 1950s, early 1960s, tens of millions of Chinese were starving to death through actions and inaction of their own government. And when Mao was told about it, he essentially said, well, let's just, you know, keep keep going. It was uh, unconscionable, really. And his colleagues, people like the president of the republic, as opposed to the chairman of the party, Liu Xiaoqi. Um, some of the up-and-coming senior leaders, people like Deng Xiaoping, who would go on to become the paramount leader of China a few years after Mao's death. These people looked at what was happening and finally came to Mao in the early 60s and said, look, this has got to stop. This cannot go on. You cannot keep starving people in the countryside. We need to reintroduce proper systems of economic supply and control. And Mao was basically sort of moved out slightly. He wasn't fired. He couldn't possibly. He was, was, you know, the most prestigious figure in the revolution. But he was given some grand titles and um, slightly moved to a more separated position. And he was very angry with this. He never acknowledged that he had done anything wrong. And he started to essentially form a new alliance with Lin Biao, the defense minister of China, and essentially use not only the defense ministry, but also the army as a way of building up an alternative power base. And meanwhile, he was plotting That when his moment came, there would be a reckoning for Liu Xiaoqi, for Deng Xiaoping, for the other civilian party leaders who he felt had put him out to grass. And he had no interest in being put out to grass. He wanted to come back and not only come back in power, but also renew the revolution. And that, of course, was the uh, staging ground for the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution in 1966.
2: Now, coming on to the events of the Cultural Revolution itself, We had a question from Original Jia on Instagram who asked, who were the Red Guards?
3: Who were the Red Guards? The Red Guards were the shock troops of the Cultural Revolution. I think that's probably not exaggerated in the way that I put it. They were teenagers. They were students. They were boys. They were girls. They were the younger members of society who essentially were given an exhilarating but terrifying message by Mao in the summer of 1966, in which he basically declared that it was for the youth of the country to be one of the driving forces in renewing the revolution. And so basically the universities were shut down. Uh, Mao didn't expect the Cultural Revolution to go on for years. He thought in the space of a few months, some of the educated youths, the intellectuals of China, the up-and-coming, you know, the university students, the high school students could use... What he thought of as the kind of inspiring qualities of youth, the fact that they were a sort of blank page on which a new kind of future could be written to essentially teach their teachers. But of course, what also turned out to be the case, and I think Mao knew this and didn't care that much, was that it also unleashed a tremendous um, uh, arc of violence. The Red Guards, these school students, uh, these university students were basically told that they had to re-educate their own teachers and lecturers. And of course, in many cases, they decided to use a tremendous amount of violence in doing this. So they would get uh, you know, professors they disliked and force them to kind of parade in public, holding their arms out wide while confessing their crimes. Um, the Red Guards, in other words, became the sort of violent tip of that, counter, that, that new revolutionary force that Mao was looking to unleash. But they also became a sort of religious cult, semi-religious cult in worship of Chairman Mao. And there's all these astonishing records that we still have of uh, young people making their way to Tiananmen Square, you know, this huge great square in the centre of Beijing, just to get a glimpse of Chairman Mao at their peak. Some people say that nearly a million people may have been in or near the square. Uh, We have records of one young red guard, I think probably in his late teens at that point, saying... I saw Chairman Mao in the distance today. I'm so excited that I'm going to redefine my own birthday. I'm going to make this my birthday. And, you know, it almost sounds like a kind of Christian metaphor, in a sense, about being reborn because of seeing your your saviour. But, of course, this wasn't a religious figure. This was the leader of the Chinese Communist Party that the Red Guards were worshipping. So in a sense, you might say the youth shock troops of China, that's the way to think about the Red Guards, uh, who had their peak from 1966 to 69. Finally, when they got out of control, even Mao decided that it was too much to have them rampaging through the streets, and they were essentially shut down by the army, and many of them sent off to the countryside for their own re-education.
2: Now, another term that people might know from the Cultural Revolution period um, is the four olds. And uh, we had a question from Ken Pickering on Facebook who wanted to know what does that phrase mean?
3: The phrase for olds is in a sense quite typical of political messaging in China both then and now. It's very commonplace, it's very common in the communist period but actually it even predates the communist period to do little lists, enumerations of things that are problems. So um you can have uh, things like uh, uh, San La Pien in Chinese, which means literally the three old articles. And what they're talking about is three articles by Chairman Mao, which were regarded as sort of key ideological texts for members of the party to read. So this numbering of things is quite commonplace. So what are the four olds? Well, it refers to four of the ways in which, according to Mao... Chinese culture, even after 17 years of communist rule in 1966, still held on to many aspects of the feudal past. So, you know, old customs or old ideas, these, these sorts of, uh, of things. It could refer to a very wide range of problems as Mao saw them. This could be people still having sort of nostalgic feelings for the pre-communist period. It could be spending too much time, as he would say it, in kind of intellectual and bookish pursuits, as opposed to sort of learning about revolutionary fervor. It could refer in a very vague sense to simply not being enthusiastic enough for the um, power of the Communist Party to dominate society. So the phrasing of it was essentially about the way in which supposedly Parts of pre-modern traditional Chinese culture were still, in Mao's thinking, infecting the wider revolutionary culture. But it also became an excuse for yet more destruction because, of course, the slogan that came from it was that it was time for the youth of China to smash or destroy the four olds. Um, And what they ended up doing in many cases was taking old things, often very beautiful things, um, porcelain vases, temples, buildings, and just smashing them into pieces.
2: Now, we had an interesting question that came in from Always Zalpika on Facebook, and they wanted to know, how did they manage to suppress the opponents? And were they able to satisfy the international community about it? Which I suppose is is two questions, really. Firstly, about the nature of domestic opposition to the, the Cultural Revolution, but also about the international view of what was happening in China.
3: Yeah, two excellent questions, actually. I would say that in the short term, yes, Mao succeeded in essentially destroying the power base of his opponents. Some of his old rivals, Liu Shaoqi, the president of China, died miserable deaths. Uh, Liu Shaoqi was very ill. He was taken off to the city of Kaifeng in central China, kept in a basement, basically, not given medical attention. He he died of medical neglect, you might say. Deng Xiaoping did survive, but his son, Deng Pufang, uh was chucked out of a I think second floor window, maybe a first floor window. You know, he survived, but he was paralyzed for life after that. Um, And he later on would become chairman of the All-China Disabled Persons Association uh, as a result of his experiences. So enemies were dealt with brutally. And Mao did get back to essentially reigning supreme, seen as the great helmsman, the shining star of the East, all these phrases that were used in the propaganda. But in the longer term, even medium term, it became very clear to many of his colleagues that China couldn't carry on way, destroying everything, creating very little. And some of the more moderate members of the leadership, particularly the Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, started manoeuvring even in the late 1960s, early 70s, in various directions that would turn China away from that inward-looking arena. Um, So the famous opening to America, you know, the visit of President Nixon in 1972, often forgotten that happened during the last years of the Cultural Revolution. It was still going on when he was there, but welcoming the American showed that the moderates within the leadership had managed to push in a different um, direction. The Cultural Revolution, that leads us to the question of the international reaction, because I think it's fair to say the Cultural Revolution was the single most isolated time that China has ever had in the modern era. It had diplomatic relations in a proper sense with almost no countries at all, the one exception being tiny Albania, In in Eastern Europe. The reason being that, of course, it still hadn't opened up to the Americans, at least not until the the later years of the Cultural Revolution when Nixon visited in 1972. So the West was off limits pretty much. But they'd quarreled with the Soviet Union in the early 60s. So both the Soviets and the Eastern European bloc were out of reach for for China. They had some relations with the Third World, as it was then known, so places uh, in, in Africa, Southeast Asia, but even there, relations were a bit wary. There were very few foreigners in China during the Cultural Revolution. So very few outsiders had much of a vision of what was going on other than these kind of bits of film footage of young red guards worshipping Mao and these propaganda posters with pictures of men and women with rifles and fierce expressions in their their eyes. But what it all meant was really, really hard for them to, to work out. So that being the case at the time, actually the international reaction for the most part was bafflement because they really could not work out what on earth was going on in China, but they were very worried that it might spill over into something you know, genuinely dangerous for the rest of the world.
2: Now, um, Maoist China did have its supporters among among the left wing within Europe and the United States and places like that. Did the Cultural Revolution shake that belief at all?
3: There was certainly a strand of left-oriented thinking in the Western world and also parts of the Global South, the non-Western world, that really admired that type of violent Maoist cultural revolution, Uh, whether it was, you know, students in Paris in 1968. I mean, the Beatles uh, rather satirised this. There's a famous song called Revolution. John Lennon's uh, lyrics, or Lennon and McCartney go both, I guess, but I I suspect this is probably more John, actually, wrote... um, you shouldn't go around carrying pictures of Chairman Mao that won't do any good anyhow, which I think was meant to be a sort of slight dig at the kind of students who would do exactly that. But the idea of overturning all of society, you know, smashing the old cultures and putting something new in their place was very exciting to many young people in Europe in the 60s who sort of saw themselves as being in some ways hemmed in by the constraints of bourgeois society. And it's also fair to say that in parts of Africa, for instance, where many of the countries were just decolonising, finally. The idea of an un- unapologetic, highly non-Western style of government seemed at least inspiring to some, even if the specific methods of the Cultural Revolution were not very attractive to, to many people outside, because in the end, the kind of destructive violence that we've talked about wasn't really a very helpful way in terms of constructing a society, as many of these post-colonial countries really wanted to do.
2: Now, we well, had a question from uh, Diddy TV on Instagram, And they wanted to know, were there attempts to control the direction of the Cultural Revolution? Was it Stalin's purges or the Salem witch trials? And I suppose by that they mean, did the Cultural Revolution get out of hand as essentially happened at Salem? Mm
3: -hmm. Interesting analogies. Yeah, Salem witch trials, was certainly plenty of that. Um, There was this sort of terrifying phrase um, that was used at the beginning of um, a kind of political struggle session when people said, right now we're going to inspect you an inspection was not a sort of gentle process it was very much going through the file and quite often using physical violence to make people confess to various crimes and crimes could be anything from having learned english which became illegal as opposed to um uh, well actually no foreign language was really permitted by that that, at that stage but english was particularly heinous i think it's fair to to say or wearing foreign clothes you know if you had. uh, sort of leather as opposed to cloth shoes that might get you into into trouble. So the range of crimes like the Salem witch trials could be very, very extensive. It probably wasn't the Stalin purges though for, for this reason. The Stalin purges involved either mass deaths, and there were plenty of people who were killed during the Cultural Revolution or, or driven to suicide, but also special camps. Now China has always had prison camps uh, called Laogai, reformed through labor. But actually the the frightening thing about the Cultural Revolution was that you didn't have to go to special camps, you know, on the edge of town to see it. It could be happening right in front of you. You know, this was being done in people's workplaces, in people's schools. Um, People were being paraded and forced to confess their crimes in front of their peers. So in that sense, maybe it's more like the French Revolution, the idea that not only do you create terror, but you have to show terror in the face of the wider crowd to make it clear that the state and its revolution cannot be, you know, countermanded in any way whatsoever. So getting out of hand, well, you know, Mao at one point was told that, you know, in one city, I think, uh, in fact, I'm sure, uh, Chengdu, uh, young Red Guards hijacked tanks and started firing at each other on, on the street in a sort of mini civil war. And whether it was this story or similar stories to it, we're not quite sure, but Mao was told at one point that this sort of thing was happening. And he replied, apparently, the situation is totally chaotic and out of control. Everything is excellent. In other words, it's worth remembering that Mao always had this streak of revolutionary anger and desire to overturn everything. Some of his communist colleagues Despite being communist revolutionaries, were quite sort of pragmatic machine politicians, Liu Shaoqi, Chen Yun, these sorts of people. They were kind of, you know, the Politburo guys, a little bit grey, doing things by the book, uh, which they had, of course, written in many cases. Mao loved books. He loved reading. But then the other thing he'd want to do was literally, you know, well, metaphorically and literally, I think sometimes, tear up the book and just kind of wing it on his own. And the Culture Revolution was the ultimate example of him winging it in terms of just throwing stuff in the air, seeing what would happen and paying no attention to the massive destruction that uh, followed um, until finally, again, he was told by colleagues that it had to come to an end. But Mao, given his head, I'm not quite sure how quickly he would really have brought it to an end. I think he was enjoying it.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: You will still find people of a certain age, in their 60s and 70s in China, who were in the Cultural Revolution as teenagers,
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favourite shows to getting your favourite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
2: During the Cultural Revolution, were there any... Um, did it have any effect or impact on places like Tibet and on some of the minority groups in China?
3: The Cultural Revolution was hugely destructive for minority groups in China. Um, Tibet is perhaps one of the best-known examples because Tibet um, has always been a deeply religious society, Tibetan Buddhism, of course, at the centre of that. One of the most horrific things was the destruction of temples and monasteries in Tibet during the Cultural Revolution. And it's worth noting that this doesn't just mean sort of smashing them into pieces and frenzied violence. In many cases... They were carefully deconstructed and taken off to build secular buildings instead. So the kind of fierce, slow, pointed deconstruction of religious buildings as part of the Cultural Revolution to make it clear the revolutionaries utter contempt for the religious traditions of that particular area. And since Tibet in particular had this very strong, still does, this very, very strong Buddhist faith, this was a particularly um, heartbreaking gesture from the point of view of the local Tibetan population.
2: Now, another popular internet search query is when and why did the Cultural Revolution come to an end? The Cultural Revolution went in
3: phases. Officially, it lasted from 1966 to, to 76, a 10-year period, which even now is regarded officially as a disaster in China. And there was just a new resolution on the party's history that was passed you know, just a month ago in Beijing in uh, November uh, 2021, which many people thought might try and sort of smooth over the record of the Cultural Revolution. But interestingly, it didn't uh, It didn't go into huge detail, but it did say that this was a mistake and a period of, um, uh, of disaster that needed to be um, overcome. The first phase, the violent phase, the phase that most people associate with the Cultural Revolution, the Red Guards, um, really came to an end in three years, 1966 to 69. And after that, you get a period when it's the army, that's mainly in charge. The People's Liberation Army is essentially under the leadership of of Lin Biao, the defence minister, and they actually commit less flamboyant violence. But many more people are killed actually during that phase of the Cultural Revolution than in the first phase. I mean, again, numbers are hard to calculate, not least because you have to work out if someone is driven to suicide, is that a Cultural Revolution death? I think it is. But, um, you know, we're talking perhaps about two million deaths over, over the period. And during that time, while the Cultural Revolution looked as if it was in a more sort of sober phase, in fact, it was very violent. And then the final phase, 1972 to 76, is one where, first of all, Lin Biao, the defense minister, well, first of all, in 1971, for reasons that are really not entirely clear even now, suddenly fled China. It appeared that he might have been um, trying to launch a coup against Mao. We still don't entirely know. Um, and uh, you know, another set of leaders were essentially combating with each other for power um, under under Mao um, a more radical leftist group known as the gang of four, including Mao's wife, uh, Jiang Qing, and the more moderate group under the Prime Minister Zhou Enlai. And these groups battle for power. So the best example of how that changed into another phase of the Cultural Revolution was the invitation of President Richard Nixon of the United States to China. He visited in February 1972. The 50th anniversary is coming up in 2022. And um, it's fair to say that that marks the slow beginning of the last phase of the Cultural Revolution, which perhaps surprisingly does involve a little bit more of an opening to the outside world, particularly the United States, and also, although hidden away, the way very much under the surface, a slow but steady move towards a more industrial market-style policy. It's often said that China didn't get markets back until after Mao had died. That's not true. Zhou Enlai and various other people from the early 70s onwards were starting to say, look, China has to start importing goods again to keep its industries going. If it does that, it needs to produce things. If it's going to produce things, we need some kind of market mechanism to do that. And that all starts to bubble in the last year of the Cultural Revolution as well. So it's a longer and more complex period in terms of when it starts, when it ends and how it divides than people sometimes think.
2: But but essentially, the Cultural Revolution finally comes to an end with the death of Mao himself in, in 76.
3: Is, is that right? Yes, I think technically it lasts very briefly afterwards, because after the death of Mao in 1976, um, his successor, who again was a surprise candidate, a a rather sort of low-key Politburo member called Hua Guofeng, um, took over. He became the second chairman, Chairman Hua, but he also organised many of the palace bodyguards to basically arrest Mao's wife and the other members of the Gang of Four pretty quickly after Mao's death. And um, at that point, the Cultural Revolution then is officially put to uh, put to an end. So, yes, it's fair to say uh, pretty soon after the death of Mao, the official policies of the Cultural Revolution are officially brought to an end.
2: Now, you've already alluded to the, the terrible death toll of the Cultural Revolution. Um, but we did have a question from McCormickle5 on Instagram who asked, were there any successes of the Cultural Revolution? And I, I suppose that would depend on what your perspective is, whether... You know, Mao would think there were successes or whether like an outsider would see any positive uh, results of it.
3: Well, important to divide those two things. As I said, Mao seemed to have been entirely delighted by the Cultural Revolution throughout the entire time. He certainly didn't seem to regret it in any way by the time he uh, he died. So from the point of view of causing chaos and getting himself back into power, he had succeeded in terms of his own power play, that's, that's for sure. Did anyone else benefit from it? I think one has to say, first of all, very, very clearly... That the Cultural Revolution was a period of immense destruction and horror for millions of people, and in that context, it is a bit difficult to sort of do a, a ledger of kind of pluses and minuses. But that having been said, I think the following things are worth noting, and the, uh, that that have given people some more nostalgic memories of the Cultural Revolution. And the reason I I think it is worth noting this is that you will still find people of a certain age in their 60s and 70s in China who were in the Cultural Revolution as teenagers, and some of their memories are more positive. Than you might think. And these are the reasons. The first one is that for some young people, particularly coming from less privileged parts of China, it was their first chance to actually kind of meet each other, to travel around, to actually kind of see how big China was and have it with that sort of feeling of revolutionary inspiration. They were being told by the leader of the country that they, the youth, were the, you know, inspiring force that was going to renew China. You know, that's going to make you feel pretty big about yourself. And people still have some warm memories, even though they saw that the aftermath was, was pretty disastrous. Also, as I've said, parts of the economic shifts that would turn China into the powerhouse of, you know, the world economy in the 1980s and 90s were being laid down in the Cultural Revolution, not entirely all for economic reasons. Mao became increasingly convinced, with some justification, that there might be a war about to break out, not with America, but with the Soviet Union, particularly in 1969, And he had a lot of industry moved down to the far southwest so that if there was a sort of massive attack on the northern border, then China could continue industrial production, uh, at least down in in the south. And some of that, although the war didn't happen, thankfully, the moving of the industrial plant meant that there was more opportunity to actually develop industry in that part of China. That probably wouldn't have happened without the war scare of the Cultural Revolution. But that having been said, The central policies of the Cultural Revolution were a sort of strange, contradictory set of ideas that massive violence, lack of interest in education, because universities and schools were essentially shut down for most of the Cultural Revolution, and a kind of inward-looking xenophobia could be a powerful revolutionary combination. And it didn't take very long, I think, even during the Cultural Revolution itself, to see that that was a deadly formula in terms of China's development. It's one of the reasons why what even people feel nostalgia about certain aspects of the Cultural Revolution now and then, very few people would ever advocate any return to the actual policies of the Cultural Revolution.
2: Now, we had a question um, from Malikovich on Instagram, which was, how did the position of women change and did traditional patriarchal structures shift during the Cultural Revolution?
3: The Cultural Revolution promised a great deal in terms of changing gender norms and I think delivered relatively little. On the plus side, assuming that your interests are in greater equality, which I hope that most of us would be, you could argue that the fact that, for instance, fashion became essentially a taboo and everyone had to wear, you know, sort of these uh, blue or green uniforms that all look very similar and quite militarised, would mean that in some ways, um, you know, the, the kind of gender norms of society around kind of fashion and appearance were being flattened out. However, this didn't mean in practice that actually the differential positions of men and women were, in most cases, particularly well um, reoriented. So think about those famous Cultural Revolution posters. If you haven't seen any, just, you know, Google Cultural Revolution posters and you'll you'll find plenty of them online. Look at the images. Almost all of them are gendered male. So for instance, you'll see plenty of young women and they're all kind of screaming and they're holding bayonets or rifles and they're wearing military uniforms. You will search a very long time, in fact, I think you may search forever and not find any similar Cultural Revolution uh, poster of a young man feeding a baby with a milk bottle, for instance. Now, that really would be a reorientation of gender norms in the Cultural Revolution. You won't see it. If you look at what we now know from archival materials about the way in which people actually behaved during the Cultural Revolution, it was clear that political crimes were often very different for men and women. And in women, in women's cases, their sexual histories would quite often be used essentially as accusations against them in a very, very patriarchal and pre-modern sort of a way. So you might have the appearance of the Cultural Revolution, but in practice, in many cases, the old patriarchal norms came out again. However, one thing that I think we could say off the back of that is that it is the case that during the Cultural Revolution, the number of women in lower-level party cadre positions seems to have increased quite significantly. It then went down again from the 1980s onwards, and ever since then, as anyone who looks at Chinese politics, you know, even from outside, can see – The position of Chinese women in politics has been a very minority position, certainly compared to the dominance of of men, despite one or two prominent um, counterexamples. And even during the Cultural Revolution, it's worth noting that when we talk about the top leadership, the only prominent female participant is the one who happens to be married to the chairman as well. So again, that's not a great recipe for greater gender equality, I think.
2: Now, we had a question from uh, JEC542 on Instagram And uh, their question was, what was the impact on Chinese culture of the Cultural Revolution? I think the impact
3: of the Cultural Revolution on Chinese culture as a whole was mostly very negative. Because essentially what it did was to make a particular type of very rigid ideology the only important um, framework for understanding whether a, a piece of artwork or a piece of cultural production should regard as good or, or bad. And, you know, if people don't look back, I think, on the films of the Cultural Revolution era, which are mostly very stylized and think of them as great um, masterpieces. That said, there were some interesting things done, particularly in the area of traditional operas, where some of the kind of standard uh, Chinese operas were put together in forms that, you know, had their own power and um, force about them. I mean, famously, Nixon, I think, saw a performance of modernised Chinese revolutionary opera when he visited in in, in uh, 1972. But, you know, the Cultural Revolution in and of itself Did not produce great novels, it didn't produce great films, it didn't produce great artworks, other than with the possible exception of these adapted um, uh, revolutionary operas, and whether great is the right word for them is another matter, but they were prominent, I, uh, I suppose. And in that sense, it is really the reaction to the Cultural Revolution, which has, you know, been like a shockwave through the Chinese art scene in the decades ever since, that really is its legacy. So the Cultural Revolution itself produced very little culture that I think has lasted, but the aftermath of it has produced books, films, uh, artworks, and many many other um, uh, products that have indeed been seen as very important. Everything from uh, you know Zhang Yimou's film To Live, Ho-Zhi, which uh, is about sort of Cultural Revolution generations, it was actually banned in in, in China, but but um, can be seen in the in the wider world, or indeed. Um, the work of the so-called scar authors, uh, Shang-Hen Wenxie, um, which appeared in the very late 70s in the immediate aftermath of the Cultural Revolution with literature that was there basically to try and, in their own words, heal the scars of the destruction of family bonds and affection that the Cultural Revolution had forced on so many families.
2: Now, I suppose one one book that got a lot of prominence during the Cultural Revolution was Mao's Little Red Book, how important was that to the events that took place?
3: It's fair to say that The Little Red Book is probably the single piece of of, of printed work that, that got the most um, uh, airtime or reading time of, of, of anything during that, that that period. And, you know, there were clearly millions and millions of copies that, that, that were printed. The Little Red Book became immensely important, but not so much because of The content has content. It was almost more like a Bible or you know a religious text. Uh, People would sort of hold it up as a symbol of their own moral goodness in the um, moral universe of the party, and they would use quotes from it. Rather, as people do use quotes from the Bible to basically kind of fight wars against each other. So, you know, a revolution is not a dinner party, or imperialism is a paper tiger. These phrases come from Mao's words, usually expressing some rather snappily. Actually, was he was good with words? was was Mao Um, imperialism? Or uh, you know whatever the target might be being being attacked in some longer essay, but the context and the longer essay rarely made it into the into the short quotes in the book. Instead, it would be almost like a sort of stylized use of these quotations to prove your moral worth. And you literally get cases where people will be yelling quotes from Mao at each other as a means of trying to win a particular sort of either rhetorical or in some cases genuinely violent argument.
2: Now, moving on to the present day, we had a question from Eric H. Roth on Twitter, which was, what do contemporary Chinese citizens know about this turbulent time?
3: And how is the Cultural Revolution
2: taught in Chinese schools?
3: The Cultural Revolution is not ignored in China, but it's downplayed very, very significantly. Um, As I mentioned, the recent resolution of the party on its own history, just, you know, Past a month or so ago, November 2021, does mention the Cultural Revolution in negative terms and says that it was a destructive period that mustn't be repeated. So there is still an official acknowledgement at the highest levels that the Cultural Revolution was an error, a mistake. They probably won't go much stronger than that, but I think the general understanding that it was a disastrous period is, is in people's minds. But what the Chinese state managed to do in the late 70s and early 80s, and that still remains the case, is to essentially pin it on the shoulders of just a few top leaders who went wrong, particularly the Gang of Four, who were said to have led Mao astray. And that includes his wife, of course, but there were four in in, in total. Now, as an understanding of the way in which this movement convulsed Chinese society, that that, that isn't enough, because just four people, however, however powerful, couldn't have done that on their own. It's clear that the Cultural Revolution unleashed deep, and bitter tensions within Chinese society, young against old, you know, left against right, whatever it might be, that were expressed through the horrors that came during those years. But at the same time, it's also fair to say that there are small and often hidden areas where the Cultural Revolution is talked about in China. There's one, at least one private museum in Sichuan province, where you can go and see, at least for the moment, exhibits of the cultural revolution. It's a private foundation, not a state one, but it is, for the moment, open and and can be discussed there. In schools, it is mentioned, but very briefly, Chinese history textbooks, for the most part, do not spend much time talking about aspects of modern Chinese history, where China is essentially the author of its own problems. There's plenty of discussion about the evils of imperialism, where China, you know, as has been, you know, rightly discussed in in schools, was invaded by foreign countries on numerous occasions. And there's plenty of discussion of kind of Cold War imperialism by the Western countries against China, particularly the United States. But China's own sort of self-destruction, cultural revolution, and of course Tiananmen Square in 1989, these are subjects that are either downplayed or in the case of 1989, Tiananmen Square, not mentioned at all. Um, So in that sense, It is something that is there in the sort of the shadows. Everyone knows about it. It's talked about. But the details and the causation are not things that are discussed in any very great detail. It's not completely ignored, but it's not a major part of the way in which the state thinks about its own history.
2: And how much do you think the Cultural Revolution has shaped the current top leadership of China, many of whom actually lived through and to some extent would have participated in these events?
3: I think one of the most powerful ways to think about the top leadership of China in this generation, Xi Jinping and others who were in his generation, the the 60-somethings, is that they are children of the Cultural Revolution. Because I think that we all know that there are lots of things that affect you in life, but what happens when you're a teenager really does shift your dial and set your way of thinking in some ways for a lifetime. Xi Jinping was one of the youths, one of millions of youths who was sent down to the countryside um, to a very remote part of China. From all accounts, he really didn't have a good time when he was there. I mean, very few people had a good time, but I think you know he seemed to have had a particularly uncomfortable time. And yet, it's also the case, from what we know, that he was the son of a, a top communist leader already, so he came from a very high red background, you might say. And this may be the first chance he he would have had to actually see how people in the hard scrabble countryside of China. Really lived, Um, you know. This is something he wouldn't have seen uh, in the relatively privileged leadership compounds in Beijing, of course. So, you could argue that some of his two of the trends which mark the top leadership and certainly Xi Jinping today are products of the Cultural Revolution. One, perhaps more positive, is I think a genuine belief that poverty alleviation and equalising economic opportunities is one thing that the Communist Party really has to do for society in China. But the other one, which I think is more frightening, is the development of an idea that the most important thing in any society is to stop the chaos that the Cultural Revolution won, as the Chinese call it, breaking out again. They saw society just, you know, breaking into a kind of mini civil war, not so mini, actually pretty major, around them. And it's turned into a sort of authoritarian mindset that believes that whatever else happens, control is the most important thing. And in a very different society today, one that is, you know, at peace, one that um, has, you know, uh, international trade, the internet and all of that, the imposition of a stronger and stronger authoritarian framework, which has clamped down on free speech, civil society and all of those things the last 10, 12 years, I think is in part a continuing afterburner and aftershock of that youthful culture revolution experience, when in their own minds, they saw what letting things go could lead to and fear that in a very different society today the same thing might happen again even though the likelihood of that is very minimal.
2: Okay and so just finally Rana do you think another cultural revolution could take place nowadays?
3: I don't think the cultural revolution as we understood it in the 1960s and 70s could happen again today in the same way and there are several reasons for that. One is that it was dependent on a time when people really believed fervently in a kind of class-based ideology um, that Chairman Mao had, of course, propagated and developed during his years in power. And I think that will be hard to reproduce in the present day. It was also based on the idea that I think Xi Jinping and other contemporary leaders today would absolutely run away from, you know, 100 miles an hour, which is that you have to mobilise the people to form their own revolution And while this led to tremendous violence and destruction, I think Mao in a sense was genuine about wanting people to sort of, you know, create this revolution in their own backyards. And I don't think that today's Chinese communist leadership has any intention of allowing that to happen. So I think the driving motivations are are different. But I think the idea that China, you know, goes in phases from a very strongly authoritarian type of culture to one that has... An authoritarian government with more, you know, liberal spaces—that is very visible over these decades. You know, the Cultural Revolution is perhaps the single most inward-looking period of Chinese um, recent history. The nineteen eighties, up to Tiananmen Square, and the early two thousands, in fact, were basically relatively liberal times in terms of what you could discuss—ideas about democracy or liberalism or constitutionalism. Most of that freedom has now been squeezed out in the last ten years or so. The, The the grounds and the Um, areas on which you can have open political discussions are much, much more limited than they were even a few years ago. And while that will not, I think, lead to the Cultural Revolution again, I think in that form, it couldn't really happen today, because you need a sort of figure like Mao to actually um, instigate it. And, you know, there is no such, such figure of that sort. The idea that China might go down a much more authoritarian path is quite visible at the moment, And I would say that, you know, there are many people in China, including some who I think are quite powerful, who do know that China has generally been at its most successful when it does allow space to breathe for different ideas. But whether that's going to happen in the next few years, I think it's still work in progress. And the signs do look as if there's more emphasis on control rather than on freedom.
0: That was Rana Mitter. Rana's a regular contributor to BBC History magazine and the History Extra podcast. So if you'd like to hear or read more from him, just type Rana Mitter in the search bar at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.